Hi, this is Bob Groves. I'm coming with another episode in our Provost podcast series, Faculty and Research. And we're joined today by Mark Rose, who's the Paduano Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Biology Department here at Georgetown. We're happy that he's willing to share some time with us. Mark has made major contributions to cell biology and genetics using the model organism of Baker's or Brewer's yeast and elucidating mechanisms of cell and nuclear fusion, as well as discovering proteins involved in nuclear and chromosome movement, protein translocation and membrane fusion. He was named a fellow of the American Association of Advancement of Science also of the American Academy of Microbiology. In his early years, he received the Presidential Young Investigator Award and the James D. McDonald Foundation Award. He is one of the prominent members of our scientific faculty here at Georgetown. In addition to teaching genetics at both the undergraduate and grad level, Mark served for 13 years as Director of Undergraduate Studies in Molecular Biology at Princeton. There, he helped strengthen departmental student advising, developed a uniform assessment set of standards for the evaluation of independent work, and revised the graduate curriculum to match biology in the 21st century. As a member of the American Society of Cell Biology Education Committee, he helped organize the first symposium on cell biology education. Mark, I am delighted to have you join us in this little podcast, and welcome. Thank you, Bob, for that very generous introduction. Very much appreciated and happy to be here. Well, maybe we ought to start the way you started as a biologist. I'm interested in what was the moment where things started to appear to you so coherent that you wanted to devote your life to the study of cell biology and genetics? Let me say that I had a not a very straight path to that. And so I'll give you just a little bit of a description. So I was a high school student in the late 60s, a time of unbelievable social ferment, Vietnam War, assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy, time of enormous social progressive activism, at which I got very caught up. At the time that I went back to high school with the truant officer on my tail, I had to make a decision. What did I want to do with my life? I came from an artistic family. I was very interested in art, but my parents gave me a great gift. They said two things. One was whatever I did for my vocation in life, it should be something I love. And the second is try to make money doing it. So they suggested (laughs) I not be an artist. Luckily, I was really interested and I really enjoyed science. And so when I went back, I decided that that was what I was going to do. And I thought about it also in terms of the social good, which is that it seemed to me that we needed to make decisions based on science and not on superstition. And so any contribution in the science world was going to be a positive good. That was my general goal. I didn't become a cell biologist until I was in college. And I actually, I would say that it was more about being a geneticist than being a, a cell biologist. And it came about because I took a lab course. And in that lab course, we did experiments and there were yes or no answers. And I was so amazed that there was a biology science that you could get yes or no answers and not have to rely on statistics to come to conclusions that I decided that that was the most powerful biology around. And so that's what I changed my major to. And that's what I've been doing ever since. <laughs> I love the story because it's rich. Do I infer correctly that part of it 
was the doing of the experiment and seeing the answer that that made things vivid? Absolutely. Oh, you know, that's a fair statement that this may be the artistic background that I've always had this very visual orientation and seeing the results have been very powerful. And I've always done either microscopy or or some kind of imaging in my research. Mm -hmm. And you also articulate a reason that is quite compatible, I think, with the Georgetown ethos, that you saw a way to do good. Was that part of the culture that in the science, or was that something that you felt was, you know, your calling for a field that may or may not have espoused the same set of values? Well, I came into it not through this particular field. When I made that initial decision about pursuing science, it was very naive. (laughs) Let me just say that right at the get-go. And what I chose was ecology, because even then, the climate change and our current environmental crisis was apparent that we were heading in this direction. But then for myself, it was much more of a very strong, positive reaction to what was happening in genetics and how we did the science that made me feel that this was a very compelling way to go. If I get it right, you were a biochem major at Cornell, and then you move into biology. So tell me about that transition. Well, actually, I was a genetics major at Cornell. Uh Cornell was so large that you could be a genetics major in biology. Uh Very interesting. Very interesting. There's one thing about biology and in contrast to other sciences, I think, in that it's had a relatively recent elaboration into subunits in larger research universities. There's biology going on in departments that have usually an adjective in front of the word biology. So tell me about your own view of the evolution of the field and and what made it become elaborated in that way over the past few decades. Hmm. It's an interesting question. Like many science fields, specialization happens because the knowledge base and the technology and skills that you need to go forward and do research in those areas becomes very, very uh, specialized. You know, I'm thinking in particular about uh, neurobiology, which really has a very, very specific kind of knowledge base. Overlaps in some ways with what I do in genetics and cell biology, but which has much more specialized knowledge, say, about how neurons work, how the brain is architected, and which doesn't really impact cell biology views very much. But biology as a whole, I think, really exploded in the 80s. I got to say, I was really very lucky that it did, uh, with the recombinant DNA revolution, that we went from being in a position where we could only relatively passively study organisms and how they work, to being able to make active changes in their genome in such a way that we could very easily address questions about how they work. And that was a tremendous explosion um, and opportunity. And it meant that pharmaceutical companies changed the way they did things. We're seeing just the COVID vaccine is the benefit of that whole knowledge process. So I was lucky in that suddenly a whole lot of jobs available, which wasn't true when I started in, as a graduate student. I was given the one in seven of you will go on to become an academic lecturer early on. But by the end of three quarters of my graduate class were very well employed in the sciences and academia. Go back to those moments. And once you entered a PhD program, were you thinking of an academic career or did you entertain other possibilities? I have always, again, perhaps naively, been what one would call a pure scientist. And there are arguments about this all over the place. One of the frequent questions is, how will this help health? 
how will this help you know, human society in some way? Now, I work on yeast cell biology. And one might argue, why are you studying yeast, right? Is it to make better bread? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> so if I can delve into the science a little bit, you know, we, in our bodies, you know, there's tens of trillions of cells, individual cells, and each cell can undergo all of the basic fundamental processes, could have, some of them have stopped doing this. All of them could have divided so they can make an exact copy of themselves at some point. If this is a tremendously complicated process. And if you look inside the cells, it's astonishing how complex they are with organelles inside, things moving around, chromosomes, chromosomes dividing, membranes, it's an incredible amount of structure. And so the big question is, how is it that each of those cells can do each of those incredibly complicated things, all doing it at the right time and the right place? So it's really hard to study humans. <laughs> it's much, much easier to study yeast cell. And it turns out that all of those basic fundamental processes, how chromosomes move around, how the cells divide, all of those things are the same. They're done by the same genes, the same proteins. They've changed over the years, but they're fundamentally still the same. And so you can study those processes, those basic cell biological processes in yeast in a way that you could never approach it in a human is that how do you characterize your career in some sense? It's that puzzle of what are the mechanisms for behaviors at the cellular level and what's making it happen? Is exactly. It... So I'm very much interested in how things work. And I guess just to tie it back up to your original question, the fact that they're the same in humans, or many of them are the same, means that you can now address some things that might be about human disease or that might be about hereditary states that are problematic. One form of colon cancer, there's a hereditary colon cancer called HNPCC, hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer. It's a mouthful. But people who inherit this have a very high likelihood of getting colon cancer. And it was recognized that some of the genetic changes that occur in the cells as they develop cancer looked awfully familiar because they looked like what happened in yeast cells that had a particular mutation in a protein that corrects errors in DNA when it gets replicated. And based on that, they looked and found that in fact, when you looked at that, the human equivalent of that yeast gene, those people have a mutation in that gene, right? So that's just one example, but there are many of them. And in fact, many Nobel prizes have been given for yeast cell biology because they've allowed us to make progress in fundamental processes, how the cell division cycle is organized, how proteins get secreted from the inside of the cell to the outside of the cell, things like that. So you labeled yourself a pure scientist, and these are times where pure and basic science is struggling, I think, versus more applied work that gets payoff more quickly. And I hear you making that argument that there's value for application in pure science. I make that case very, very strongly. <laughs> and I think that this podcast is one way to do that. <laughs> it's definitely true that you can't really make progress in an applied sense unless you know the basic mechanism. You know, President Nixon had his war on cancer, put a lot of money behind it. It didn't make a lot of progress right? Because it put all of its money into applied research. And the critical discoveries about how cancer is caused, what's happening, you know, in the basic research side by people doing things that did not have an obvious application. Is that 
connection between pure and applied any better now than it was when you started your career? Oh, sure. There isn't anything I've ever done in my research, right? Discovering these basic mechanisms where people who study human disease haven't looked at that and said, "Uh uh-huh, I wonder if this is relevant to what I do. So if anything, in these days where we have computer databases, where there's a very good flow of information from the yeast genome database to the human genome database, people are really picking up on all of those kinds of basic discoveries. And it's not always obvious what the connection is, but people are definitely looking for those breakthroughs. And um, I think all of us in cell biology, particularly even in yeast, I mean, I've certainly gone and given talks at pharma companies that are interested in particular problems, both in the human health side, but also in the agricultural side. I want to switch gears a bit and take you back in your life. So if I understand it right, you did a postdoc at Cambridge, and then you entered as an assistant professor in Princeton. And talking to some of our newly minted PhD colleagues who've entered the tenure track, it's a common phrase that they say that, wow, there's a lot that I'm learning anew. This juggling of teaching and research and service to the department or the profession is something that I didn't really do as much in my earlier formative years. And they struggle sometimes. And I think sometimes they're reluctant to talk about it because they view it as a personal weakness. But in my experience, it's part of the game. It's something that you have to learn in your own way. How did you cope with that early on? And what do you know now that you wish you knew those first days as an assistant professor? Back when I was an assistant professor, it was very much a sink or swim situation. I'd like to think, and I do think, that we're doing better now than we did then. We make it a point in our graduate education to make sure that people have exposure to teaching, that they have experience at it. We talk about career development in a way that we never used to. Back then, what I would have really liked is more information about how to write a grant, how to submit a grant, how to write a paper. Uh, These are all things that we now address explicitly in our graduate education, certainly at Georgetown and increasingly so at other places. But it was certainly difficult. Having teaching was hard. My first couple of years, I got very negative reviews, which became much better over time. I recognized the key thing was that I wasn't teaching to myself. I was teaching to other students some of whom maybe wanted to be little Mark Roses, but most of whom wanted to do something very different. And that was a really key thought process for mine, is just to consider the audience. But that's also true for writing as well. I think that the harder thing has, was about managing people. If you have graduate students, as any successful faculty member will and postdocs, we're not really trained to deal with those situations very well. And it turns out that individual people don't come with instruction manuals. And the things that work for some people don't work for other people. So there's a a lot that goes on into trying to understand the people that you work with and develop strategies for helping them become their best and do their best. You know, thinking of the thing a provost does from time to time is look at syllabi from various courses and you can't exit that effort without realizing that we give to our students the best of our field. We have them read literature and findings that we as instructors think really represent the best knowledge production. What we don't give them is a sense that what they're reading is like one in a thousand efforts that scientists or scholars uh, work on. And so I think 
all of us have a, a whole lot of papers that didn't make it and ideas that we thought were wonderful upon initiation, but just didn't pan out. So that raises the question. So of all the things you could be working on, do you have a sense of how to select a question that you want to pursue that has merit? And are you smarter about that than you were before as you mature as a scientist? Speak to that. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that I am trying to teach the grad students here in biology. As my wife and I call it, it's the difference between rolling pennies and quarters. So we had a big pile of change. We started taking them to the bank. We put them in paper rolls. And she noticed that I was taking all the quarters and rolling them. And she was doing the pennies. And so why am I doing that? I said, well, because the roll of quarters is worth a heck of a lot more than a roll of pennies. <laughs> So then the question is, well, what are the quarter rolling questions? And that's the really hard thing because we teach what we know. We don't teach what we don't know. So identifying new interesting research projects is the hardest thing for us to do as scientists. I think the process is hard. For me, it's about questioning everything that I hear, putting it, trying to make internal models, seeing whether or not they make sense, whether they explain the data or not. And when I see an inconsistency or a gap in our knowledge, then to me, that's at least something worth pursuing. But then there's lots that we don't know. Some things are much more worth doing than other things. Some things are details. They might be, yeah, you know, this gene that I know well in my favorite research organism, budding yeast, you know, may look a little different in a related yeast. Is that worth studying? I don't know what it does in that other organism. And I would say, no, it's not that important because frankly, I don't care that much about the other yeast. I do care about basic cell biology. There's certainly a lot of things that genes that do various yeast specific things, like, you know, how does it make the specific spore wall? Well, humans don't make spore walls. So that's an interesting question, but it's not one that I want to pursue. I want to pursue something where, uh, like something that we're doing right now, we're studying a protein called CAR4. And CAR4, which we discovered based on a, its cell fusion role, turns out to play a critical role in meiosis. That's how gametes form. Turns out humans have a CAR4, very similar. And it's known that it's important, but not really clear why. So we're now studying the role that CAR4 plays in regulating meiosis in yeast. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel very confident that what we're going to learn is going to be transferable from yeast to human because it's so fundamentally conserved. So that's one of the ways we focus on. I infer from this that you have to do some reading outside of your field from time to time to get these insights in order to evaluate the potential impact of a finding, uh, pursuing a question. Is, is that the case? I think that we are all should be curious and read widely because we never know what connections we're going to make to different areas of biology and chemistry and physics, frankly. It's fun to think about stuff. Yeah. That's why we're here. That, this is going back to what my parents told me. I love doing this for two reasons. I love learning about the way things work. And the other thing that I love, frankly, is teaching. I was talking to a set of undergraduates the other day about these sorts of things. And they said, you know, I can always tell when the professor is talking about the stuff that he or she is actively working on because they start jumping around and, and their eyes light up and they're smiling and 
the excitement is infectious. You know, this union of research and teaching seems to be a winner whenever we can do it. I think that teaching is informative for research and for a really key reason. It helps you think about what's important. If it's important enough to tell the students, then it's chances are really good it's important to do that research. If it's a detail that you wouldn't really want to talk about, maybe it's not the best approach. And vice versa, as you pointed out, students can tell when you're excited about something, right? And that enthusiasm is key to really being a great teacher. You have to do both to be good. And that act of trying to describe it to students often yields a side benefit that you have to synthesize a bunch of knowledge that you never had to synthesize before and you reach another level of understanding. I think people often comment on that. So maybe we should end with, what are you working on now? What's exciting you now about your daily research work? Well, I touched on it earlier, this thing about Carrefour. So this protein that seems to regulate meiosis. Turns out that meiosis is really very different from mitosis. So mitosis being cells dividing, meiosis is the creation of the germ cells, the gametes, sperm and egg. In mitosis, when you need a gene product, a protein, you just turn it on when you need it. So it's sort of a, in production, it's a, you need it on demand, right? On demand delivery or supply. Meiosis is really different. And I think it's partly different because it's often done when, when cells are committed, they're no longer like making stuff. They're no longer taking in nutrition. This is the one thing they're going to do. And what they tend to do is they make all of their genes activated at the same time, but they don't need all of those gene products at the same time. So it turns out that what they do is they make this thing called mRNA, which is an intermediate between the gene and the protein. They make all of it. And then they hold some of it to the side until needed. And instead, they change when they make the proteins from that mRNA. That's what's regulated. So a much different step. We think that that's what Carrefour is, part of that regulation. And so that's what we're incredibly excited about. Right now. I can feel it. Well, Mark Rose, I want to thank you for spending time with us and giving insight into how you view your work day to day and the devotion you've given to a set of questions that are deeply important to cell biology, but to humanity itself. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Bob. It was really a pleasure.